Good morning, Doxa Church. I hate to interrupt uh, you meeting people and stuff, but you can go ahead and grab a seat. Go ahead and take your seats. This is the part that I'm always the worst at. My wife is a teacher in, at Connection Group. I always am like, Morgan, can you tell them to stop talking? Because I'm like, stop, please. You know, anyway. Good morning. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Sam Roberts. Um, I'm on staff here at Doxa Church, and I, and I get to oversee local missions for us here at Doxa. Um, and occasionally I get to teach the Bible as well. Um, and so that is what I am up here to do today. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and open it up to Jeremiah. We're going to be camping out in Jeremiah 29 this morning. Um, if you've got, you know, the physical Bible, uh, you can crack it in half and then hang a right, and you should hit Jeremiah eventually if you've got the app. Um, word search it or whatever you know. But Jeremiah 29. We've been in uh, this six-week series. We're in the fifth week now of, of our Six Marks series, where, where we're looking at six marks that we believe as a church every Christian should be known by. And so all of us here at Docs, as followers of Jesus, want to be known by. And, and the first couple weeks, right, we, we looked up at God and, and talked about being a worshiper and being a becomer. And then we spent a couple weeks looking in at the family of God, at the church, and about being a lover and an investor. And today we're turning to look out at, at our neighbor and, and asking the question, what does it mean to be a neighbor? So while you're flipping to Jeremiah 29, I thought I would open with this quote that I have been uh, chewing on this week, a, a quote and a question. Um, this comes from uh, the great church father, St. Augustine of Hippo, he says, quote, It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? This is a very serious quote, please. Um, I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day since we're together. We might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? I think I might have misattributed that quote. Um, that's actually not Augustine of Hippo. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. That's a dumb way to start the sermon. But uh, that is obviously a quote from the late, great Mr. Fred Rogers, host of Mr. Rogers' uh, Neighborhood. Those are the lyrics from the theme song, Won't, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, I'm a big fan of Mr. Rogers now. I, I watch his documentary like once a year, and it makes me cry <laughs> every time. But when I was a kid, I cannot say I was a fan. Um, I was more of a Pokemon kid than a PBS kid, um, and I would usually turn the the channel pretty, pretty quickly whenever Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood would come on. But on the off chance that, that I saw it and I would kind of let the theme song run, I remember always thinking this question, what the heck does any of that mean? Like, Fred, what are you on? It's a, it's a neighborly day in this beauty wood? That doesn't mean anything, right? And in a sense, we are here today to answer that same question. Not what, what do the lyrics of Won't You Be My Neighbor mean, but what on earth does it mean to be a neighbor? Right? Because, you know, we're probably familiar with the word in like the, the hallmark sense. Like it, we, we know like we get warm, fuzzy connotations from it. And, and even if like me, you didn't grow up going to church, you maybe have like tangentially to Christianity an idea of what Christians think about like, you know, the golden rule and, and being a good Samaritan and stuff like that. But what on earth does it actually mean to be a neighbor? Because, you know, it wouldn't be enough for us in, in this six-week series to be like, hey, week five, um, just be a neighbor. You, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out, right? 
Because we could all hear that word neighbor and, and take that a hundred different ways. But also to be clear, this isn't like the bonus week, right? Like it, the past five weeks have been, you know, pretty intense. So we threw one in that's like, you know, you don't have to do this, but it's kind of like feels nice, you know? No, like it wouldn't have made the list unless we were convinced every Christian is called needs to be a neighbor. And so if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, what we want to do today is look at what does the Bible, what does God have to say about being a neighbor? And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know, maybe you're just here kind of checking it out out of curiosity or, or your mom guilt tripped you into coming, whatever, you know, welcome, happy you're here. But you too should be interested, you know. I've met some Christians that are nice, some of them are jerks. So what does Jesus himself have to say about how we're supposed to live in the wider community. So we're going to look at the words of two people in our Bible today, Jesus and Jeremiah, starting with the prophet Jeremiah. So look with me, Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay, so what's going on in this text? Well, if you've been coming to Doxa for a few months. You might remember uh, the Daniel series that we went through last fall. So pull your mind back there. Th this would have been written around the same time that the events of Daniel were happening, right? Where God's people, before they entered the promised land, they were told by God, hey, everything is going to go awesome for you. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have more than enough to go around. Just keep my covenant and everything will be good. But if you don't keep my covenant, if you don't love God, and if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, it will not go well for you, right? And, and if you break the covenant, I guarantee you are going to be sent into exile in no time. And spoilers for the Old Testament, exactly that happens. The Israelites do not love God. They don't love people. They turn and worship other idols, and they oppress and neglect the poor. And exactly what God said, what happened happens, they go into exile. So, they're getting this word from Jeremiah. They're understandably bummed, kind of confused. And God is giving this, the, them this word. So why are we reading this, right? Because to be clear, you know, the vast majority of us and probably none of us are, are actually literally exiles, right? Most of us are probably U.S. citizens, citizens of Madison or, or the greater Dane County area. And, and even those of us that maybe aren't U.S. citizens or maybe you're even a first or second uh, generation refugee, you're, you're not part of this original audience that Jeremiah is writing to. So why should we read it? Well, beyond the fact that this is just significant to the history um, of God's people in the Hebrew Bible— when you get to your New Testament, you will find Jesus and his disciples constantly using the language of texts like this, of prophetic exile texts, to talk about how they think about living in the world today. As dual citizens of both the kingdom of God and looking ahead to their future, but also right now in whatever city they find themselves. So, as we look at the words of Jeremiah and Jesus today, I think that God is going to show us 
how to neighbor well by showing us that the world is bigger than we thought it was, that there's more than enough to go around, and that this kind of life really is possible. Or, to put it another way, for you note takers, we're going to look at the call to neighbor, who to neighbor, and how to get a heart for neighboring. So first, the call to neighbor. The first point we see Jeremiah making here is this. Put down roots. You live here now. So if you're looking at your text and you kind of glance forward a few verses, you'll see God telling his people through Jeremiah, hey, don't listen to the other prophets that are claiming to speak on my behalf. I didn't send them. They don't speak for me. And the message that they would have been hearing from these other false prophets of the day was basically something like this. Hey, Look, don't get too bummed out. Like, this is kind of just like a glitch in the system. We're not supposed to be here in Babylon, right? We're not supposed to be in exile. Give it a few weeks, five to seven business days, and we will be out of here, okay? So don't unpack your your bags. This isn't going to last very long. And God is saying through Jeremiah, no, what I said would happen is happening. You're in exile, and for the foreseeable future, you live here now. I have this really specific memory um, from when I was a kid, and and this relates, I promise. Um, But I remember um, I grew up in Ames, Iowa, so a college town like Madison, but just like a lot smaller. Um, And and my dad worked for the university. He was a a research scientist at Iowa State University. So uh, when I was in preschool, I went to what we called lab school, which was basically, you know, a full, uh, you know, preschool that was attached to the university. Um, It was a preschool, but also some of our teachers were like um, uh, young childhood development students at Iowa State. And so as far as I can tell, I was kind of like a lab rat for Iowa State or something. I'm not sure. I'm grateful. I'm sure I got a great education. They didn't take any off my tuition for that, but whatever. But anyway, it was a cool school. Um, And I I have this really specific memory of of one day, uh, our teachers giving us this really exciting news where they're like, hey, Iowa State is building a new lab school building. Like we're going to have a new space that we do preschool in. And so, so we're not going to be in this building anymore, but we're going to be in a building over there. And they kind of gestured like to across campus. And, and they even let us walk over to the playground and see like, look, they're building it right now. This is what your new playground is going to look like, you know. So exciting news. Then we go back and they kind of send us back to playtime for the rest of the day. And I don't know why I remember this, but um, we were that day taking like packing peanuts and like dipping them into water and like making structures out of them or whatever, you know. Some of you like, early childhood development, people were like, yes, packing peanuts. Like, that's awesome, you know. And in fact, my wife pointed out after last service, she's like, that was really clever of them to do packing peanuts and tell you that you were moving. And I was like, that's, I never put that together for, but anyway, I remember the kids all started playing, of which I was one, but I kind of sat back on the bench uh, by the coat rack by the door and just watched everybody. And I kind of was judging the other kids because I was like, did they not hear what the teacher just said, you know? And one of my teachers came over and she's like, hey, buddy, like, what's wrong? Like, why, why aren't you playing with the other kids? And I told her, like, you just said that we're moving to a new building. Like, I thought, like, we're not doing preschool here anymore, you know? She's like, no, no, buddy, like, that's, that's not going to happen for a long time. Like, that's going to be like, you know, when you come back after the summer, you know? And I'm like, I don't, ma'am, I'm four. I don't have a concept of time. Like, <laughs> how many sleeps is that? I don't know, you know? She's like, it doesn't matter. It's not today. We're just playing today, you know. So I go back and I'm just playing with the packing peanuts and feeling kind of betrayed and confused. And my, my point is this. I think a lot of us live like that. Where we rightly believe and know 
that this is not my forever home. And one day we're going to see the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to be ushered into the perfect community of God where we'll live forever in perfect unity with him and in perfect communion with each other. But then because of that, we kind of turn and have a pessimistic, cynical attitude about our life right now. Where we see is everything that we do, our jobs, our, our work in the city, whatever, we see it's just kind of like killing time until the real thing starts. Packing peanuts, right? And what God is saying to his people here and what he's saying to you is that you're not just killing time. Your life right now really matters to God. I mean, look at the language that Jeremiah uses in verses five and six. He says, build homes, plant gardens, multiply like beyond the fact that those things just like take a really long time to do, Jeremiah is straight up using Genesis 1 language, right? Subdue the earth, tend the garden, be fruitful and multiply. It's as if God is saying that though your ultimate home, yes, is somewhere else, my Eden mandate that you create and cultivate culture still exists now. He uses this language of a sort of dual citizenship where you are at once fully a citizen of God's kingdom and at the same time fully a citizen of wherever you find yourself now. Here's how Jesus describes this in Matthew 5. This will be on the screen. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one gives light or lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus says you are like a little city on a hill, a representative of God's kingdom, citizens of the city of God and citizens of wherever you live now. And so Jesus offers us this radical view of the present earthly city that leads us neither to assimilate with it nor disdain it, but rather to love it. Right? So, so we don't assimilate with the world. We don't, you know, as followers of Jesus, people who have put our trust in the life and the work of Jesus, we now belong to the kingdom of God. And so we don't just kind of blindly adopt the values of whatever subculture we find ourselves in. So for you, as a follower of Jesus, to your non-Jesus following friends, can they tell you apart at all from the rest of the world? Like, for example, there are people in this room that, you know, would self-identify as a Republican. And, and there's people in this room that would identify as a Democrat. And that's cool. But does your progressivism or does your conservatism look any different from your non-Christian peers? Or do you make all the same jokes, use all the same insults as everybody else? Remember, the, the very fact that they were in Babylon, the Israelites, is because they had become completely indiscernible from their Babylonian neighbors. They worshiped the same gods and they oppressed the same people. And so Jesus' view of the city leads us not to assimilate, but it also doesn't lead us to disdain the city, right? Jesus says, let your light shine. How? Do we let our light shine by letting everybody know, like, I hate it here. This place sucks, right? Or, or do we let our light shine by letting everybody know, like, hey, just so you know, I think that I'm better than you, you know? No. Jesus says, let your light shine by your good works. 
And to be clear, when Jesus uses that phrase, good works, he's not talking about like reading your Bible or praying, though those things are awesome. But when he says good works, he means practical, tangible deeds of service and material aid for others. And you cannot do that from a distance. You cannot do that if you hate your city. And so for some of us in the room, we might feel some disdain towards the city of Madison. You might look at Madison with some suspicion or even some hatred or like, I'll use this city for all that, you know, it offers me, but I'm going to kind of stay out on the outskirts, both literally and figuratively. And if that's you, if you would say either out loud or just in the quietness of your heart, I hate Madison, you need to know that God does not. God loves Madison. And if that's you, you, you need to hear God say to you the same thing that he said to Jonah, how could I not love that great city with all its hundreds of thousands of people in it? God loves Madison, and so should we. For as long as you live here, whether you are a college student, whether you just moved here for Epic and you think I'm just probably going to be here a couple years, that's not, as I said that, that sounded like a dig on Epic. It wasn't. It's a transient town. Whether you're either of those or you've lived here for decades, the point is the same. Put down roots for as long as you live here. Be the salt and light of the world here in Madison. Okay, but so what Jeremiah is saying and what God is saying is not just an abstract appreciation for the city, right? It's, it's not just enough to say like, oh, okay, I'll shop local on State Street and I'll root for the Badgers. But what he's calling for is that we actually know our neighbors, right? Like implicit in the command that we build homes and we pray for our city is that we have to be in the city, not, not just building like a little city outside of the city, but that we're actually getting to know our community. Remember, Daniel, right? The best student, the best employee, well-regarded among his peers. So I can't just appreciate from afar. I need to know the people that I'm around. When, when Jesus and the Apostle Paul are constantly giving instructions on what to do when you go to a neighbor's house for lunch, the assumption there is that you are going to your neighbor's house for lunch, right? So a really simple action step for you, leaving this service. It might just be this. Knock on your neighbor's door and invite them to lunch. Right? And, and I know like for some of you, you're like, I'm out. Like that's, you know, way too much. I can't even imagine, you know, this could look like a million different things, right? Like I just moved into a new home and I feel this temptation all the time. Whenever it snows, for one, I'm like, I don't want to shovel again. But if, if I do, and I, and I will, I promise, you know, for whatever, uh, I feel this temptation of like, okay, maybe if I time this right, like I, I won't have to run into anybody or whatever, you know. And then I'm constantly convicted, like, what wickedness is that? Like, the Spirit is constantly like, get to know your neighbors, you know? Or, or, or maybe for you, it's something like this. Like, a, a couple years ago, I was uh, going through a book with, with some of the people in my connection group. And one of the women in my group, Nicole, was sharing about a way that she was feeling convicted. And she was sharing about how, like, quickly she'll shop for groceries, you know? And how she was feeling convicted of, like, I need to just, like, maybe go through the grocery store slower so that there's even a possibility that I could talk to someone, right? And I wanted to be like, yeah, Nicole, you should do that. But like, all I could think was like, 
Nicole doesn't shop with her headphones in? Like, I was like so convicted by her conviction, you know? Maybe that's your action step. Take your headphones out at the grocery store, on the bus, whatever. Maybe your action step is, hey, next time you get on the belt line, pray for every car you see and ask God to help your heart change to where you see those as people behind the wheel and not objects in your way. Whatever it is, in a world gripped by our screens, and in a country where the dream is just to get your own place and deck it out, God is inviting us to a view of the world that's so much bigger than we could have imagined. So plant roots, know your neighbor, and then third, look at verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So it's not just that I like my city, and and it's not just that I know the people in the city, but I'm going to seek the welfare of this city. I am invested in the flourishing of the city of Madison. I care that our streets are paved and that our parks are clean and that the schools are flourishing because I'm invested here because this is my home. And so again, with that too, that can be pretty broad, and so we, we should ask the question, You know, welfare could look like a ton of different things. What to God does seeking the welfare of my city look like? Or to put it another way, who am I supposed to neighbor? At first glance, right, shooting from the hip, we might be like, everybody, neighbor everybody. And and in one sense, that is 100% totally correct, right? Seek the welfare of the entire city. And, And if what God is doing in your heart today is helping you move from beyond caring about just your house to your street, your neighborhood, and the whole city, that is awesome. But in another sense, we would be stopping too short if we just stopped there. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 14. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That is some strong language coming from Jesus. Don't invite your friends Don't invite your rich neighbors. Invite the people that can't offer you anything, right? Like, that shakes me a little bit. That is some, like, strong language. As I've been thinking about this, I love this quote. This is a real quote this time. Um, This quote comes from John Newton. He was a slave trader turned abolitionist. You probably know him for having written the song Amazing Grace. He says, one would almost think that Luke 14, 12 through 14 was not considered part of God's word, nor has any part of Jesus' teaching been more neglected by his own people. I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that it, it, it is in some respects our duty to give a preference to the poor, I am at a loss to understand them. You see, God in the Bible and Jesus in his teaching puts forward this image that to truly neighbor to the fullest extent, to truly do our neighbor justice is to be just. And to do justice for our neighbor, that looks like equality, advocacy, and radical generosity. Right? So, so doing our, our neighbor justice, equality, love 
like, I'm not going to love you more or less based on your socioeconomic status, right? Love the entire city. And that alone should challenge us, right? Like if all my friends look like me, talk like me, think like me, I should at least begin to ask the question, why is that? So it's equality, but it's also advocacy, right? In an ancient world where where people would have said, hey, look at the richest people in our country and how well they have it made, or, or look at the kings in our country and how powerful they are. That is how awesome our country is. That is how awesome our gods are. God enters that scene and says, look at the people that in the world's eyes have nothing to offer. No status, no house, no money. And now look at however they are treated That is what people think of me. And so it's not at all that that God is like anti the wealthy or he hates wealthy people. And in fact, you can read your Bible and you will find tons of examples of godly men and women using their wealth to honor God and to bless the community. But God self-identifies himself as the defender of the poor and so commands us, speak up for those who have no voice and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. And so when I read verse 7, seek the welfare of the city, right, that I, I don't just turn and then say, okay, I'm going to pray that like Hildomal turns a prophet or whatever. Though, totally, like that would be great. I hope that that happens. But rather, I read seek the welfare of the city and I want to have, like Jesus, a bottom-up understanding of welfare. Who has the fewest resources? How are they doing? That is how well our city is doing. Maya Angelou said it right when she said, a society is only as healthy as its sickest citizen and only as wealthy as its most deprived. So doing justice for our neighbor looks like equality, it looks like advocacy, but then it looks like radical generosity. When a teacher of the law came to Jesus and asked him, hey, who really is my neighbor, right? Like, like trying to put a cap on it, like let's be reasonable here. Jesus sidesteps that question and instead answers the question of what does it look like to be a neighbor? And he tells the story of a Samaritan, somebody totally different from you, putting himself at harm, in harm's way, taking any risk, saying, I will pay as much as it takes and I am invested for as long as it takes to help you with your problem. That is what a neighbor looks like. And Doxa, can you imagine the kind of impact that we could have on our community if we actually lived like that, if we lived with open hands. Like in a world whose, whose default position is it's not that bad and it's not my, my problem, that is nuts. But that is what the family of God is meant to be. People who are so others focused that we're able to live as family regardless of socioeconomic status because today I've got your back and tomorrow you'll have mine. And we extend that love to anybody in our city regardless of if they go to our church or not. See, the reason that I'm harping on this so much is because I really believe this is not just like bonus material, but this is the heart of what being a neighbor is. This isn't icing on the cake for Jesus, but this is the crux of the matter. Unless we are actively pouring ourselves out with tangible deeds of service for others, especially those affected by poverty or just otherwise marginalized and vulnerable, we are not doing our neighbor justice and we aren't obeying Jesus. Now, I get how stressful that sounds, right? Like, 
Like inviting my neighbor to lunch was one thing. And, and now Jesus is calling me to, to live with open hands and like none of my stuff is mine. Like that's scary. And I get it and Jesus gets it too. See, in, in Jesus' teaching, there's a moment where, where he's telling his disciples about living for the kingdom of God and storing up treasure in heaven and, and he kind of reads the room. He can tell like this is stressful stuff. Right? And, and he pinpoints what it is exactly that keeps us from living like that. He, he pinpoints that deep in our gut, we just don't believe that there's enough to go around. Like, there's just not enough time. There's not enough food. There's not enough money. I don't know when I'll get mine next, so I don't know how I'm supposed to openly give to others. And to that, Jesus asks the question, what kind of a host do you believe God is right what kind of a host do you think god is because because you've been to parties where you show up and you're immediately met with dread because you look around the room and you see 40 bodies and you see two boxes of pizza right you're like oh man this is one of those parties but then you've been to parties where you show up and the host does it right man like like they have laid it out like buffet style all you can eat if anything you're gonna get too much stuff on your plate right and when you're at that type of a party and when you've loaded up your plate to eat, you sit down and somebody sits down next to you and your friend looks at your plate and says, man, they had brownies? I didn't, I didn't even know that they had brownies. I wish that I had grabbed one. What do you do? You say, dude, just take mine. I'll just go up and get another one. That is the kind of host that God is. Jesus says he's a good host. He's a good father. Look at the birds. They don't have storehouses or retirement plans, and yet God always seems to feed them. Or look at the flowers. They don't spin thread, and yet they are always beautifully clothed. God is a good father. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you. And so, Luke 12, 33 Sell your possessions, give to the poor, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Now, again, there still remains one huge hurdle that keeps us from living like that. Like if we stop there, there's still one major thing that in the years that I've been, you know, doing local missions work, but honestly, even more than that, in the past several years, just observing myself and what keeps me from, from neighboring like this, is that at the end of the day, we just don't believe that this is possible, right? Like for all the idealism that we have, it's just not pragmatic. Like the social fragmentation is just too bad and, and the generational poverty is just too complicated. Like we are never gonna put a dent in this thing, so why even bother trying? Or, or maybe if you don't have pessimism about like the practicals of it, it's more just like, I don't think that people are selfless enough to do this. People are just too selfish. This is never going to happen. And even the most fervent among us, if all we have is a guilt trip and, and a pat on the back to get us by, eventually we're going to burn out. So what even is the point? Why even try? And God and his power and grace addresses both of those concerns at once. When we ask the question, is this possible? God poses the question, is the tomb empty? Right? There's this wild chapter 
in your Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 15, where, where God is giving instruction to his people before they go into the promised land about how they're going to live. And he's telling them about like all this land and money that you're about to get. If and when somebody falls into poverty, here's what you do to make sure that you are helping them, right? But then he makes this wild claim in verse four, where he says, but there will be no poor among you. He says, there won't even be anybody in poverty as long as you obey me and as long as you live how I'm telling you to live. But then, verse 11, he says, there will always be poor among you because you're not going to obey me. You're not going to love me and you're not going to love your neighbor. And in fact, the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses telling the people, you won't obey God. You won't love God and neighbor. You're going to turn to other gods and you're going to get sent into exile. But did that verse sound familiar to you? Like, did, did the wording of Deuteronomy 15.4 strike a bell? Like, did it sound like, hey, I feel like we've talked about a story kind of similar to that recently, right? Like, like l- listen to this verse again. I'm going to read from a slightly different translation. Deuteronomy 15.4 says, there will be no needy person among you. And if you've been coming to Doxa for 14 or more days, you might remember last week we were in the book of Acts in chapter 2 reading about God's first church, the first followers of Jesus and how they live with each other. And then in Acts 4 verse 34, it says, There was no needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. There will be no needy person among you. There was no needy person among them. Does that sound like it might have been intentional? Like I'm like geeking out as I'm reading this. It's as if the author of Acts is saying, hey, remember another story where God's people had a ton of land and a ton of resources and then there were people in need and they had the opportunity to do something to help the people in need. It didn't work then, it worked this time. And so what happened? What happened in between Deuteronomy and Acts that now God's people somehow actually have the capacity to love their neighbor? Exactly what God said would happen. If you're still in Jeremiah, we don't need to go far. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. God says, though you're in exile now, I am going to do something new. I am going to address the root problem that keeps people from being able to love me and love their neighbor. I am going to give my people a new heart entirely. And so then hundreds of years later, the Israelites are back from exile, living in Jerusalem, and we see John the Baptist saying, prepare the way for the Lord. The Messiah is here to save us from exile. And who shows up on the scene? Jesus, who lives the perfect life you and I couldn't, he dies a death paying for our sins, the death that we deserved, and three days later, he raises victoriously, defeating sin, death, and hell, but it doesn't stop there. Scripture says that Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits of the new creation. We're the new creation that God promises, the new heavens and the new earth, where people will finally be fully right with God and fully right with neighbor. That new creation has already started now in Jesus. And more than that, scripture tells us that for all of us that trust in Jesus and what he did, 
You are a new creation. Your very heart is made new. And now you actually have the ability to love your neighbor. We ask, is this possible? God asks, is the tomb empty? You see, Doxa, when we look at what Jesus did for us, then we will have the heart to be a neighbor. This is why time and time again, Scripture talks about loving our neighbor, not as the way that we make ourselves right with God, but the evidence that we have been made right with God. Like it's not an option, but it is the necessary fruit of, of, of what happens when we've been made right with God. When we get what Jesus did, we respond in kind. A few months ago, I had a friend who had been in and out of prison, got a place, fell behind on rent, and then ended up getting evicted. Doesn't live in Madison, lives in a different city, but he got evicted and he had thousands of dollars in fines and it was like not looking good. And he was telling me like, I don't know how I'm going to get these paid and I'm probably going to go back to jail if I don't. And he texted me one Monday um, and said like, Sam, we need to talk. And I'm like worried like something bad happened, you know. And so we jump on the phone and he's talking to me and he's like, hey, like, I know like you're always telling me to go to church. I really didn't want to go yesterday, but I went. And I'm like anxious, like what happened? Like what's wrong? And, it, and his voice is shaking. And he tells me like, I met someone. <laughs> I met someone at church and I told them my situation and they just wrote me a check. They paid like all of the fines. And I realized he wasn't shaking because something bad had happened, but he was like, I don't understand why someone would do that. And he starts crying and I start crying. And he's like, Sam, like, they didn't know that I would actually use the money for what I needed to. They didn't even know that I would be grateful. Like, how on earth could somebody do that? And I got to tell him that is what Jesus did for both of us. That is why we do any of this. Because Jesus saw you and he didn't say, not that bad, not my problem. He knew that you had no right to everything that he had. He, he knew that you probably wouldn't be grateful. He had every reason to think that you wouldn't take him seriously. And he gave everything. And so the one that tabernacled in a trough says the world is bigger than you know. And the one who turned water into wine and fed 5,000 with five loaves says there's more than enough. And the one who holds the keys of death says, behold, I am making all things new. This really is possible. When you see what Jesus did for you and trust in him, you are given a new heart to neighbor. So plant roots know others, and pour yourself out for Madison. So in a moment, we're going to pray. We'll transition into worship, and you'll have the opportunity to take communion. And as you take it, the bread representing Jesus' broken body and, and the juice representing his spilt blood for you, I want you to just remember and chew on the words from Ephesians 2, which says, By grace you have been saved through faith. 
that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. His broken flesh, his spilt blood, the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As you take communion today, if you're not a Christian, you don't need to take it. That's totally fine. If you are, whether you have been a long time or if maybe today is the day you chose to follow Jesus, as you take it, remember and pray that Jesus would help you get the gospel. Ask him to help you remember what he did for you and then so go do for others. Love Madison, be a neighbor. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and we confess that <clears throat> we are not the Good Samaritan. Um, we are not the, the, the righteous person and we're not the person that is right with you. We're the one in the ditch and yet you saw us and said, I will put myself in harm's way. I will pay whatever it takes and I'm invested for as long as the problem exists. And you lived and died and rose again for us. And, and Jesus, I just pray that like we would get that to such a degree that this week when we see our neighbor and they invite us to lunch, we would remember the gospel and say, how could I not? And we would remember the gospel and when a friend or a stranger says, I'm strapped for cash and I can't pay rent, we would say, how could I not? After all that Jesus has done for me, you did not commute to earth. You dwelt among us. You lived among us, God, and you chose to be our neighbor so that we could neighbor with you and actually neighbor with Madison like you created us to do. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray all of these things. Amen.